Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Faisal Liafai, and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events, and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. Today, I'm joined by Rula Jibril, an award-winning journalist, author, foreign policy expert, and a visiting professor at the University of Miami. Rula is one of the most prominent voices on the Israel-Palestine conflict in the mainstream American media. Rula, welcome. Thank you, Faisal. Thank you. I'm also joined by Lisa Goldman, editor of The Conversationalist, co-founder of 972 magazine, and a veteran reporter from Israel and Palestine. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. And can I say I love Lisa, please? Oh, God, mutual fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And we never fest has begun. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, we don't even need for me to start the conversation. (laughs) But we're here to talk about uh, Rula's essay for the magazine. But we, of course, we have to start with the current violence in Israel and Palestine. Rula, you're seeing the same horrific scenes we're all seeing. Do you think this is now escalating into a full-scale war? I think Israel just refused a ceasefire. So yes, they intend to carry on uh, the operations, military operation in Gaza until they they basically would like to achieve what they achieved in 2014, which what they called at the time uh, protective edge. Now they're calling it the wall. It's about, it's carrying, you know, it's the culmination of years of um, avoiding and, and, and basically never wanting to discuss any political solution. The only option they always put forth is a military option. And that's a way, the way they want to deal with worshippers in the Aqsa Mosque. They want to deal with Palestinians inside Israel or Palestinians in the occupied territories. That's the way they always dealt with any crisis. So yes, there would be a full-blown escalation and I believe a carnage. Do you think that it is going to be as bad as some of the wars we've seen in the past, 2014? And why do you think it might be worse? Because we have radical elements now in government. We have extremists who are mainstream. They're not even shy from professing and saying exactly what they want. I mean, the genocidal chant in the old city of Jerusalem will extend to Gaza. Uh, You know, when they march in the streets saying uh, death to Arabs, when they have the deputy uh, mayor of Jerusalem telling an activist, peaceful activist who was just shot, saying we should shoot you in the head. They're basically... Uh, you know, telling you their genocidal, uh, you know, agenda, and they're acting on it. They're not hiding it anymore. There does seem to be a sort of, Lisa, there does seem to be a sort of cyclical nature to the violence. You have the the Gaza attack in 2008, the 50-day war in 2014, six years later, here we are, and it starts to look like we're entering this conflict on a similar scale. You covered some of those conflicts. Do you think that there is a cyclical nature to it? Um, there is, by the way, you missed a war. There was one in 2012. Um, sorry. So, yeah. uh, sorry. Um, no, no, that's right. Yeah. But um, I would only, I, I, I agree with what Rula said, very sadly. I, I agree wholeheartedly. Uh, and I would add more. Yes, the violence is cyclical. However, uh, there are certain circumstances right now which have been um, basically have reached a tipping point. Um, after simmering away for the past 10 or 11 years. Um, and right, and we're going to see, I think, as, as Rula put it, carnage because of those circumstances, which are as follows. 
Um, first of all, the international community will not intervene. Um, you have, um, you know, there's, there's the, even as even as far as rhetoric is concerned, um, the none of the Arab states really has any leverage, uh, particularly the Gulf states, because they've just um, made this. Uh, um, Abraham Accords peace agreement, so forth, with so-called with Israel. Um, meanwhile, um, Hezbollah, which might engage in some rhetoric, is certainly not interested in engaging because Iran is very focused on the JCPOA, the um, the um, the multilateral uh, nuclear uh, uh, agreement. Um, inside Israel, as Rula pointed out, um, you have extremists who have reached. Um, Kahanists, fascist, genocidal types. And I, again, I'd like to say that I, you know, for years really shied away from using the term genocidal, although I, I certainly thought it, because I knew how absolutely offended most of my Israeli friends would be. But I think it's accurate. There is it's a, a forceful, there, it's definitely a forceful term to yeah. use. And you're right. I mean, it can, it can have a certain uh, resonance in Israel. Explain why you think it, it is apt. <sighs> You know, there's such a high level of dehumanization of Palestinians um, that um, has has really sort of infiltrated Israeli society. Um, so, for example, um, I don't know if you remember the incident in, in Nabi Saleh a few years ago um, when a, a young girl uh, of the Tamimi family um, was arrested at the age of 17 for having slapped a soldier. And I think she was jailed for uh, nine or seven or nine months Ahed Tamimi. Um, now, nobody in Israel, in the Israeli media, not even in the liberal media, really described this 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 person as as a child, you know, whose 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 home had been invaded by armed soldiers of an occupying power. She was considered an enemy actor, um, and that's just a minor example. But as Rula pointed out, um, you constantly hear chants of uh, death to Arabs. You see. We've had several race riots in Israel over the past few years, mostly in Jerusalem. Um, there was the the 2014 um, incident of uh, far of of right wing Jerusalem boys who abducted and immolated a Palestinian boy, also during Ramadan. Um, there's um, also you have Kahanists who are in the government and allied yeah. with Netanyahu, and this is a very important point. You know why can how is it that the deputy mayor of Jerusalem, Arya King, and Itamar Ben Gvir, who's a member of the Knesset for the Jewish Power Party, can stand on a street in East Jerusalem in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in front of countless witnesses, including the press? and tell a Palestinian civilian who's a resident of East Jerusalem, a tax-paying resident of East Jerusalem, although he's not a citizen of Israel, that they would that they wish a bullet had that they wish an Israeli soldier had killed him by shooting a bullet in his head and jeering at him without shame and with impunity. Yeah. No. The, the impunity is the, the crucial part of it, isn't it, Rula? Absolutely. I mean, this is the consequence of years of shielding Israel from any accountability. You have the radicalization. I mean, America is 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 responsible for the radicalization of Israel. That is where people are itching for a race war, for a holy war, willing to blow up a mosque and holy site, obliterating not only 
the security and safety of, of, of the people of Israel and Palestine, willing to trigger a holy war. I mean, if you are not horrified by this, you should, because they tried it before, 1984. Uh, I was raised and grew up in Jerusalem. My father worked in the mosque. He was, he was uh, the groundkeeper. He built, you know, and cultivated many of the plants in that mosque for 30 years. That was his job. And for 30 years, uh, all he talked about uh, discussing the security of the mosque, that we found five bombs. The biggest plot to bomb the holy mosque was basically discovered by the Jew by the Israeli apparatus. They were arrested. They were given a slap on the wrist. They were pardoned. They placed five bombs. Imagine Faisal in the middle of Ramadan or even any other moment that the third holiest mosque in Islam gets blown up. What do you think this will do? It will trigger a religious war. Nobody will be safe. No Americans who are seen as complicit, who are shielding Israel from uh, the United Nations. At the United Nations, they are giving them unconditional immunity when it comes to holding them to account in front of the international community, international criminal courts, or the UN, and giving them $4 billion to basically fund the infrastructure of segregation, ethnic cleansing, and apartheid. I honestly don't sleep at night thinking, if this happens, if these extremists are chanting and, and endorsing you know, war crimes, if they would get their hands and blow up any side, God help us all. Well, let's talk a little bit about the uh, American aspect of it, because you know, when I said on Twitter today that we were having this conversation, um, a Professor Nader Hashmi at the University of Denver said that it was the Obama years that were part of the problem. And there's some truth to that, because the, the lack of political leadership from the United States is not confined to one side of the political aisle. And we're going to talk about Trump in a moment, but actually it's this sort of bipartisan idea that the problem will just go away without being solved. Yeah, good luck with that. If, yeah, if Bi Biden was, well, Biden was elected, uh, it was what happened in the United States was a rejection of Trumpism, which is fascism, authoritarianism, belligerent racism. Minorities voted in overwhelming majority for Biden, and the mandate is clear. Even Jews, the overwhelming majority of Jews voted Democrats, and the mandate is clear: defend democracy. You cannot defend democracy here while you're enabling it financing it, bankrolling it, and underwriting it overseas, it will come back to haunt you. And the Republican Party today is, if you look at what's happening in radicalization in Israel politics, this is what the Republicans want to implement in the United States. Today, they purged Liz, Liz Cheney for refusing to submit to authoritarianism. Their main platform today, what is it? Blood and soil. Uh, hang my pants, uh, lock them down. This is no different from these extremist fascists in Israel saying, kill Palestinians, death to Palestinians. This is exactly the same. Yeah, Alisa. Yeah, I, I agree with what Rula said. I think also, um, as, as, as I uh, mentioned to you before we started recording, um, I really felt that I had a, a sort of a, a, an understanding of Trump's moves before he made them because I had been watching Netanyahu for so many years in Israel and saw him elected and saw how the Overton window shifted to the right under the power of this uh, discourse that was being disseminated from the prime minister's office. And what I really learned from that experience is how easy it is to manipulate public opinion. 
um, in a sort of a, almost like a, in a very authoritarian way. You sort of, you know, you'll hear uh, people who live in the former Soviet Union talk about how the discourse was affected by just this constant drip, drip, drip of misinformation and disinformation. And that's really what happened in Israel. So, um, you know, for the past decade, when I got, when I moved back to Israel in 2000, um, the majority of Israelis identified as left or liberal. Today, the majority of Israelis identify as right wing. And it's actually, in many quarters, it's an insult uh, to call someone a leftist. It's an insult. And people, I've heard people say things like, you know, I hope that next year there are like fewer Arabs and fewer leftists. Yeah. Um, and so there is this sort of um, control coming from this control over the discourse that, Netan that Netanyahu has established over the last 10 years that you can see on television news, you can see in, in the newspapers, you can see in the way people absorb the news and the way they talk about current events, and they don't question things. So, for example, um, just now I was watching um, you know, the mainstream Israeli commercial broadcaster uh, show army footage of black and white sort of aerial shots um, narrating the army's uh, description of, of hitting terrorist targets, okay? Now, if you look at any of the other non-Israeli media outlets, they're on the ground in Gaza, and they're saying, oh, this is a residential building, and there are children and old people um, buried in the rubble. And meanwhile, there are these sterile shots on Israeli television. Um, the, there's, no there's no secondary um, verification of the army's narrative. And this is what, this is what Israelis are swallowing, you know, but what's going on in yeah, it's, it's amazing. This is exactly what I teach. I teach a course at the University of Miami called Persuasion, Propaganda and Genocide. And it's astonishing to see how easy everything starts with words. It doesn't start yeah. with a killing. And the truth is, by by when Sheldon Adelson and Bibi Netanyahu made that alliance, the, fir the first thing they wanted is to control the public opinion through controlling the media and controlling the narrative. And here we are. And here Correct. we are. You have that exactly. There is. I'll just add quickly, Faisal, that there is yeah. you know, the most the most read newspaper in Israel today is a paper that was established ten years ago um, by Sheldon Adelson, and it's called the Bibi Ton, and that's a portmanteau of Bibi and the Hebrew word for Iton, a for newspaper, which is Iton, Bibi Ton, and the editorial line is so pro Bibi, pro, so pro Netanyahu that the um, that the editor will actually check with the prime minister's office before he writes his headlines. This is known. He was at the January 6th demonstration um, riots in on Capitol Hill as a pro-Trump demonstrator. Okay. And, and actually he said, brutal. if I may, what he said, that person, he actually posted something where he said, this is what happens when you don't give people what they want. That guy that invaded the U.S. Capitol, that basically is pro-BB and pro-Trump, that waged war on democracy, was actively waging a war on democracy, basically was saying, this is what happened when you lie to people and what they, you don't give them what they want. I mean, it's, it's, it's words to actions, to violence. Well, yeah. this, this speaks very much, um, Rula, to the essay that you wrote for us. So let me outline that and then we will come back to these links between the Trump playbook, the Netanyahu playbook. The, the essay he wrote for us was called Israel's right-wing rhetoric offers a glimpse of the GOP's future. And you wrote it for us shortly after the storming of the US Capitol in January. Your central contention in that piece is that the shift to the right of Israel's Likud party, this is the right-wing party of Netanyahu, 
that has also been for a very long time the party of government. That shift to the right offers a glimpse of what might happen to the Republican Party after Trump. That's the central contention, Rula, right? Yes. So uh, this is what I noticed. I lived in, in, I left Jerusalem in 1993. At the time, the Oslo Accords were, were basically uh, uh, agreed upon. Uh, so the two-state solution uh, narrative or, or plan was attacked by the right. Bibi Netanyahu and his fascists, his Kahanists, his extremists would go to the streets and would depict somebody like like Robin, Yitzhak Robin, who is a prime minister of Israel, as an illegitimate president because he was approving certain laws with the help of Arabs in the Knesset, in the parliament. They were depicting him as a Nazi, as a fascist. They were holding coffins in the streets, in rallies, saying that he should die, that he's a traitor to the Jewish people, to the Jewish state. Fast forward, he's dead, he's killed with that bullet, actually killed after an incitement campaign by, by the Likud. Uh, and by the way, even Robin wife himself accused the Likud of incitement that murdered her husband. Her husband was murdered by a Jewish extremist who's today the most popular, one of the most popular men in Israel. He's loved a Galamir. Fast forward, I see the same rhetoric when it comes to legitimacy uh, launched by Trump the birther movement, that Obama could not be an American citizen because he's black. But also there was another idea that he could not be legitimate because he's not one of us. And this is the main argument that launched to power, propelled to power Trump here in the United States. And from that moment on, it was clear that when you weaponize race, when you weaponize religion, that can lead to one path. Putting these people in power, they will declare anybody that criticize them enemy of the people, the media. That was Bibi Netanyahu's many times. The judiciary, again, attacking the judiciary, then goes down to anybody that dares to stand up and wants to hold them accountable. What we see here is an obliteration uh, of any, uh, you know, rule of law, any even pretense of democracy. These movements are anti-democratic movement, authoritarian movements, who, were, who wants to stay in power regardless, at any cost, even if they have to burn down a country. Yes. Lisa, let me bring you in, in a moment, but I, I want to read something that Rula wrote in the essay. She was writing of Netanyahu. She said, regrettably, his political strategy of propagating violent racism and weaponizing ethno-national supremacism has become the dominant sentiment in Israeli politics and society. Lisa, you've spent um, a great deal of time reporting from the country. Do you see that weaponization of ethno-national ideas becoming dominant in the country? I mean, I don't think you can not see it. Uh, this is this is the dominant narrative in Israel. And, and I should say that, by the way, I haven't been back to the country for a few years, um, but I follow things very, very closely, obviously, and uh, thank God for the internet. But um, yes, um, this ethno-nationalist um, discourse is is the prevailing discourse in Israel. Um, but I would like to add that there are some very interesting factors about Israeli society uh, that sort of play that are part of this ethno-nationalist discourse. So whereas on the one hand you have it's very common to hear sort of a Jewish supremacy uh, supremacy discourse that's being led by the Kahanists. Um, but on the other hand even as the far right is ascendant in Israel, so is the Israeli, um, the, the 48 Palestinians, the Palestinian yes. citizens of Israel. This is happening simultaneously. These are conflicting 
factors that are happening simultaneously. You know that that phrase, um, you know, uh, two conflicting things can be true at the same time. So you have, you know, even as the nation state law, which de facto makes Palestinian citizens of Israel sort of far less equal um, to, um, to Israeli Jews, you also have the emergence of really powerful voices among the third generation since the Nakba of Palestinian youth, you know, the um, sort of Gen Z and millennials who are highly educated, who speak fluent Hebrew, who are entering the medical professions, the pharmacy, you know, it's almost impossible to find a pharmacy where the pharmacist is not Palestinian in Israel. Um, so there, there is this sort of fighting, there are all these disparate groups and conflicting groups with different, uh, you know, agendas who are simultaneously reaching for a bigger piece of the Israeli socio-political pie. And that's not just the, um, the far right and the, and the Palestinians, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, but also the ultra-Orthodox and um, also the settlers. And so, you know, whereas Israel used to be a society that was dominated by the secular Ashkenazi elite, now with you know, all the other sort of subcultures struggling for crumbs uh, quite unsuccessfully, now you have all these different disparate groups who kind of sometimes really hate each other um, hate each other at the level that you would see between conflicting groups in Lebanon, for example, before the civil war. And I this means that you're seeing the fracturing of what were more established political lines. You are seeing the fracturing of political lines, the fracturing of social lines, and you are also seeing um, in tandem with the ascendant far right, an emergent far left in Israel that's becoming more and more vocal and non-Zionist left. It's very small. Um, but it's becoming increasingly vocal. And in addition to that, you're seeing a breakdown of the barrier between 48 Palestinian, 1948 Palestinian citizens of Israel and the stateless Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem. You're seeing a growing solidarity between those groups as the 48 Palestinians um, assert their identity and their right to be uh, a full-fledged citizens of Israel with all their attendant uh, rights and to identify forcefully as Palestinians. And so whereas Israel's policy for decades was divide and conquer by handing out little crumbs of rights, you know, so, so the stateless Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem have freedom of movement between Israel and the West Bank through the checkpoints, for example, but not citizenship. Then they do have an identity card for, of Israel, but you know, they don't have Israeli passports, so forth and so on. Um, but um, now you're finding that these divide and conquer tactics are less and less successful. And this is, you know, both very good uh, and very bad because the potential right now for violence, and we're seeing right now for the very first time, the outbreak of intra-communal violence in I Israel's so-called mixed cities of Jaffa, Acre or Aka, uh, Haifa, um, Ramle, Lud, very, very feral personal violence between people who have been living side by side for decades. Okay. Yeah. And this is extremely dangerous and volatile. And it, Netanyahu is throwing, as usual, fuel on the fire 
So this is something. Yeah. yeah Actually, Rula, I am you... from Haifa. Um, you know, my family, my mother family is from Haifa, and, and I have sisters who still live there. What happened in East Jerusalem, where we had the cameras, where these marches were happening, they were already happening also in, 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 uh, in Haifa. They were marching, uh, these uh, fanatics, they were marching for, for, for a while after they got elected to the, the Kahanists. They were marching during the election campaign in the streets of Haifa, threatening Arabs. What we're seeing is the culminations of year of, of disenfranchisement and trying to, to oppress Palestinians inside Israel. Palestinians, I mean, the, they, what Bibi Netanyahu did obliterated the coexistence that existed in certain cities like Haifa. The city council is formed by Arabs, Muslim, Palestinian, Christians, Jews. I mean, Ayman Aude, the head of the joint list, every time he sees the rabbi in Haifa, he, he calls him in the middle of the street and tell him how much he loves him. Today, what we are seeing is the conviction. It's, it's what Hassan Kanafani wrote, actually. He's a Palestinian writer who died in Lebanon, 1973. And what he said, that the real solution will be that Israel one day will, be, will undo uh, the democratic nature, will control everything, that Palestinians will unite from the River Jordan to the sea and will demand equal rights. We are heading toward that. And actually, some Israeli politicians are so terrified saying, you know, when they will rise and ask us for a democracy and equal rights, what do we say? We are not a democracy anymore. They are already thinking, but it's too late. It's happening. It's already happening. When you see people coming from the Galilee, the Nazareth or, or Haifa, very articulate, educated people marching in Jerusalem and saying, we're not going to be stopped. You can't stop us, but we're going to our brothers and sister, and we will we express solidarity with them because their pain is our pain. You're seeing one thing that I never seen before. Honestly, not even in the in the second Intifada in 2000. What we are seeing is a political movement of people saying, "Okay, you want it all, take it all, give us equal rights." This is where we're heading. You really mean by that that there would be a push for a one-state solution? It is already de facto a one state. It's already de facto. It controls everything. And the poll suggests, and this is the scariest part for Israel, that most Palestinians gave up on the idea that they will ever have a sovereign state. It's done. That's not happening. They know it. They see it. They know it. They feel it. They, it's all over the country. This is what Bibi Netanyahu fought against. He said, there will never be a Palestinian state under the 67 border is taking us back to Auschwitz. What he's saying, I want one state. So if he's saying it and he's implementing it and these uh, radicals are, are pushing for it, let's have it. Let's have it. The polls are suggesting 80% of Palestinians inside Israel want that, that 60% of Palestinians in occupied West Bank want that. So let's give them that. Lisa, if you, if you accept that there is this push um, towards a one-state solution. How do you think the, I mean, the fracturing of the, of the political lines that we talked about, the emergence of the far left, how do you think that would feed into the push for a one-state solution? Um, I don't think it'll be a solution. I think it'll be a de facto scenario. And, uh, and the path to that scenario is bloody, very yes. bloody. And uh, we're not there now. It's going, things are going to get much worse 
uh, before they get to that point. Um, I don't think that you'll see any organized political uh, um, negotiations toward any kind of a, a solution in inverted commas. There's just going to be, um, you know, struggle for supremacy, a struggle for power, and it's going to go on for a long time. Um, I, I don't know what the end game will be, but I know that the um, that the the short to medium term is is bleak. So some of this will turn on how the the conflict is. Um, in its widest sense, is perceived within Israel. Uh, and I, Lisa, I want to ask you about something that you wrote uh, when you were covering Operation Cast Lead. This was the military occupation against the Gaza Strip in uh, 2008. Mm -hmm. um, you were writing about um, the Israelis and how they were perceiving the airstrikes on Gaza. You wrote that um, the, the public was not interested in critical reporting about the war or in human interest stories about Palestinians in Gaza. Israelis wanted stories about the home front, about the civilians within rocket range, the soldiers called up for the ground incursion, and the worried or grieving families left behind. I wonder if you think that that is how the current conflict will be perceived within Israel. Oh, absolutely. Every conflict is 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 perceived that way. And if, and, and if you watch uh, the Israeli Hebrew news broadcasts, that's the way this war is being reported. You have, it's amazing, you know, I've been watching these wars for 20 years now, and uh, the exact same um, analysts, uh, cranky, now cranky old men like the like the Muppets in the balcony, uh, are are sitting uh, at these uh, at round tables in the television studios and giving sort of analysis that's basically um, along the lines of, you know, it's all up to Hamas if they just stop aggressing and if they stop if they stop launching rockets and agree to de-escalation, then this will be over. But they're not going to do that. And the and the is the army is doing what it has to do, you know, to protect Israeli citizens and to protect the home front. It's it's pretty straightforward propaganda, um, but um, but it's really because it's delivered, um, you know, in a in a commercial in, by commercial networks um, in color and and not by some robot sitting under a picture of Stalin. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's it's really um, perceived as as accurate reporting, but as I wrote in that article, uh, when I interviewed uh, Israeli colleagues who had been on the ground reporting that story, um, you know they they were pretty open um, about not really being able to get to verify anything that they reported. And uh, and I would add that something that didn't go into that article um, because I promised the person who told me that I would never. Uh, reveal it in that article, but I can say now, maybe several years later, um, is that the you know the news editors and the photo editors were completely overwhelmed by the quantity of material that the army sent to them, yeah. and because these are commercial news outlets, they were under enormous pressure to be the first to publish a story. So if the army would send them, you know, if they didn't have these newspapers, don't have enough staff to go through this mountain of um, you know, press releases and black and white grainy footage uh, of aerial shots of explosions um, and and statements. And so they would just publish things without verifying them. And, and if they discovered later that they were wrong, and, and sometimes they did, the corrections, you know, were either buried or not published at all and certainly made no impression on the public. Um, but American media is on this regard is no different. I mean, when it comes to Israel yeah. narrative, that I, I feel bad to say this. Now they're moving a little bit, slightly a little bit different. But the correspondent for CNN, 
for CNN in Jerusalem was bragging about her cousin being in the military. She's posting pictures of how great that her cousin is going to be part of the, the operations. And, and they're recycling Israel talking points and propaganda without being challenged. I mean, it was insane some years ago, I believe during Operation Castled, uh, CBS was interviewing uh, the spokesperson for the army. And he, even after he gave him all the space, never challenged him, he went on air and he said, well, you know, I'll repeat what, what, uh, uh, what some prime minister said in the past, that Palestinians, the biggest thing about Palestinians, that we, are, we will never forgive them for, for, for forcing us to kill their children. I mean, I was sitting in my, my, my living room. I choked on my coffee. I said, what did he just say? That was on CBS in the United States. That's what's happening in America. So we are progressive when become when we talk about Trump and Trumpism and fascism and, and gassing people in Lafayette Square. But we're not willing to challenge the dominant narrative here. And it is astonishing, the New York Times, that calls MBS a reformist and, and, and publish article after article, whitewashing crimes after crimes. But it boils down to one thing, that some people in the United States, even progressives, they think that those others, meaning the brown or the, the, the natives, or they don't deserve democracy. It boils down to one question. We were, not all people believe that we're all born equal. And it's tragic when I see Democrats, amazing Democrats who are willing to fight for democracy at home and human rights and dignity and social justice are the first people actually to endorse ethnic cleansing and apartheid. You've been, I mean, observing this in, I mean, you have quite a unique position, really, I think both of you do actually as well, Lisa, that um, you both operate in the mainstream media and then you're also very active on social media. And I wonder if you think that there are major differences in how the media and the social media um, cover it. And perhaps if you think that that has changed over the last 10, 15 years. Rula, do you want to take a first stab at that? And then I'll... Yes. So um, I think social media is exposing, obviously. There's a new generation of younger people, Gen Z, in Israel and Palestine, not willing to put up with this propagandist. So they're exposing all of these. They're actually calling, naming, and shaming these people. So last night on the 11th hour on, on MSNBC, there was this guy called Jeremy Bash who said, you know, no civilized nation should live with this. Israel is right to bombard them, whatever. Obviously, he never talked about the provocation in the mosque and, and uh, the siege or the military occupation or the fact that, you know, he depicts Israel as a victim. And it is preposterous. This is a super regional power with nuclear we weaponry who's been occupying for 53 years. But obviously that, that doesn't matter. So when you see this kind of talking point on the most liberal network, hmm, imagine the most conservatives. Imagine or it become to CNN. I mean, some of the TV hosts on CNN were spokesperson for, for APAC. And, and, and they continue to do. When it comes to Israel, this is the biggest litmus test. Most journalists abandon whatever they, th they think because criticizing Israel publicly has a cost. I know it very well. I believe Lisa knows it very well. You will be 
you will be crushed. They will try to crush you, basically, and obliterate your career. I mean, the article I published with you, in fairness, before I published it with you, and I was very happy to do it with you guys, I submit something very similar in, two th in, in uh, January 8th, after the insurrection, to the Washington Post. So I, they published my articles before about Italy and about Berlusconi, about Trump. They didn't even answer. And I know the guy very well. He didn't even answer. I saw him in the street and I asked him, dude, what's going on? He said, Rula, don't make me do this. I'm going to lose my job if I publish something like this. He's even confessing. People are terrified. When it comes to Israel, they are paralyzed, terrified. Israel hijacked the standard of journalism, the morality when it comes what professionalism is in Israel and in the United States. It's a pure propaganda, the, the whole discourse regarding Israel in mainstream media. Lisa, then tell me if that is the situation in the mainstream media, what is your sense of how it is in social media? Social media has changed over the last few years. In the, during the 2012 war, uh, the 2012 uh, Israeli military operation against Gaza, you saw um, conflicting parties fighting, having like these really vicious, feral um, fights, long threads that would go on for hours and days on Twitter. Uh, that doesn't happen anymore. What you're, and also, by the way, parenthetically, um, Hamas and the IDF were also fighting on Twitter. This and Israel also launched the war. They announced instead of holding a press conference, they announced the war on Twitter, which was considered crazy and 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 and, and amateurish at the time, but is now unfortunately almost normal. Um, but um, but what you're seeing now, instead of these uh, these fights between uh, people who disagree, um, to put it mildly, is um, people have are siloed into their own um, information bubbles. So if you there's right wing Twitter, right wing Israeli Twitter. And there's left-wing Israeli Twitter, which is almost all in Hebrew, um, whereas the right-wingers tend to um, tweet more in English. There is also, um, you know, the IDF has, I think, Twitter in like six different languages. Uh, <laughs> and everyone's just sort of disseminating their messages and people who agree with one another are showing, one, are showing each other up. Now, you still have your trolls. Uh, yes. um, and, and it can become uh, unbelievably vicious. And for some people, um, you know, getting you can some people can get trolled so badly that their jobs are threatened um, or they even lose their jobs. That's happened. Um, or even promoted, if I may. I mean, I'm looking at the case. Sorry to interrupt you. One second, Lisa. It's, it's look at Jeffrey Goldberg. Who, yeah. was, who served in the Israeli army. He's an American yeah. citizen, served in the Israeli army. He actually wrote a book about torturing a Palestinian pres uh, prisoner. He wrote about it, about the experience of torturing a prisoner. Okay, a guard. Comes back home, become the editor-in-chief of the Atlantic. And what is he doing when it comes to Israel-Palestine? Not only he doesn't publish anything, he sends some propagandists to publish all kind of propaganda, and he trolls day in and day out. Who? Rashida Talib. One of the things that is intriguing about that analysis of the, the US and of Israel is you see how insular these respective publics are becoming. Mm -hmm. And I think that the danger of having that echo chamber is actually part of what uh, Lisa was saying about the proliferation of IDF information into newsrooms in Israel, that you take away the power of the media and you hand power to politicians, because it means that, for example, in the United States, you have Trump who can set the agenda. And in Israel, you have Netanyahu who can set the agenda. 
So actually what is happening, and this is now to sort of draw a comparison between these two countries, what is happening is that there is a reduction in the power of the media, even as at the very same time Netanyahu and Trump were both using the media to aggrandize their own politics. I think there's a there's there's a reduction in in diverse critical media's ability to have an impact on the discourse. I think people, as you point out, Faisal, and as you point out, Rula, people are choosing the media outlets or the people they trust and uh, or that or with or or whose message appeals to them, and they listen only to them. And um, the, uh, and people really, you know, I've taught media criticism, and I've noticed that people really don't actually know how to assess. The, um, the accuracy of the narrative that they are that they are subscribing to. Uh, so so what you have, yes, you will see, for example, um, that um, you'll see that there are some critical voices coming out from from media outlets that are not perhaps read as widely or watched as as much as Fox News. but you know there's there's only two or three media outlets that dominate, certain dominate the narrative and the rest are just sort of shouting in the wilderness and social media has has a lot um has, has a big role to play in amplifying because you know facebook as we know has they have they have this ag algorithms that sort of um give you give the give their users links to the articles that their browsing history and click history indicates will appeal to their biases right mm -hmm. so it's this this it's this messaging that is really perpetuated um you know perpetrated by certain mega media outlets and then um perpetuated by social by social media where most people tend to get most of their news these days and by the way as we speak israel just leveled um the the tower where all the media organization reside in gaza city they just they know that They've been yeah. informed that every media organization has offices and studios in that tower. They know exactly. They have the GPS coordinates. They know which media outlet is on every single floor. Believe me, this is something yes. I for this sure. This is the main guy <laughs> building live TV. And yeah. for for live TVs in Gaza, they were just destroyed. So when they they when they bomb, uh, knowing very well that the media is there, that means they are planning actually to escalate the massacre. That means they want a media black blackout from Gaza. So nobody is there reporting directly or indirectly. And this is the next phase will be even the most dangerous phase. You've said that in the past, Lisa, about um, previous wars, that they, the Israelis banned Israeli journalists from actually going to, uh, to Palestine in order to report. Not only Israeli journalists during the 2008-2009 war. At first, the uh, the chief of the chief of staff uh, put a blanket ban on all journalists going through Erez checkpoint, um, and then to, uh, I think I and I I know that a group of bureau chiefs from major um, newspapers mm -hmm. in Jerusalem took this to the Supreme Court, and what they won was I, I think quite minor. They they were able to go on an Israeli army embed during the very last few days of that military operation. And meanwhile, quite a few reporters went the long way around. It was like taking going via the Cape of Good Hope instead of via the Suez Canal. They'd go through Sinai and come up to uh, Rafah, to Rafiah, um, mm. in, in the southern tip of Gaza to try to get in through the Egyptian border crossing there. Um, and it, that was, you know, I remember speaking with uh, Ethan Bronner, who was then the New York Times 
um, and I interviewed him for that uh, piece in the Columbia Journalism Review, um, and he, he, he said he was appalled. You know, he couldn't believe that his Israeli colleagues uh, told him, one Israeli colleague told him that he trusted the army. Now, the army has mm. very, very high credibility in Israeli society because this is, this is a country that has... Um, uh, it, it has uh, universal conscription for 18-year-olds. Um, so, you know, people, ev everyone has close family members or who served in the army or who served in the army themselves. And even though the army lies all the time, they still say, well, I trust the army because they need to trust the army, right? So while the foreign bureau chiefs and the foreign correspondents were agitating to gain access to Gaza to report the story for themselves, uh, the Israeli uh, reporters were just said, well, I, I trust the army to make the right decision. You know, if it's if they say it's too dangerous for, for us to go into Gaza to report on the ground, then then we trust them. We're not going to we're not we're not going to fight that. And they no one would have actually no one tried. No one tried uh, amongst the Israeli reporters, nor did they support the efforts of their international correspondent friends, some of whom uh, were dual citizens. Um, or Jewish to get into Gaza. That was a really amazing. Uh, at the time, it, it was it, it it was just completely outrageous, you know. Um, but now I think people have become quite reporters have become quite pacified and accustomed to being denied access. And and I just add quickly that, you know, I was at the northern border during the 2006 uh, Hezbollah Israel war. And at that time, we had complete, you know, access. We could go right up to the, I was right on on the border. You know, I could literally stick my finger through the fence into Lebanon. I could talk to whoever I wanted. I talked to ordinary soldiers as they queued up and waited to go into Lebanon. Uh, I, You know, but that kind of access is, is just no longer possible. The prime minister's office, uh, the government press office, which is a branch of the prime minister's office and which presides over media accreditation, and the army spokesperson's office, they they work in ta in tandem to um, really limit uh, media access to these big stories, mm -hmm. and and that's just become something that uh, people have just become accustomed to that. I mean, we've spoken, we're almost at the end of the podcast, and we've spoken mainly about these links between the United States and Israel, but we haven't spoken at all about the Palestinian political space. And in a sense, there's a similar political deadlock um, well, it's it's it, dead. That's why yeah, we're not talking dead. about it. It's, it's dead. About. It's buried, and it's yeah. honestly, it's just, it's another, it's it's the utter failure of everything. I mean, Mahmoud Abbas is the mayor of Ramallah, the real president of the Palestinian occupied territories, is an Israeli general. So, if we want to to you know to talk about what a mayor can do versus a president who controls his life, it's a, it's a waste of time, to be honest. Uh, Lisa, I mean, do you feel that way having been on the ground? I mean, I don't think it's it's enough for us just to um, dismiss these politicians. They do yeah. need to be held to account for doing something about yeah. the situation that they find themselves in. I, I strongly suspect that when you look at it, it feels like they have run out of ideas for they, how to handle this occupation. They've run out of ideas. They've run out of leverage. Um, some of the top, you know, Fatah uh, Palestinian Authority um, members are have really become sort of pacified by the privileges that they have, you know, so they don't have to wait to go through checkpoints, they can go abroad whenever they want, they have, you know, they have um, pretty good incomes and a lot of, like, you know, 
pretty, I guess probably a couple hundred thousand families depend on, on the incomes they get from, the, from their family members who work for the Palestinian Authority. And, you know, people in, in the West Bank live very, very limited, difficult lives. So, you know, to say here, your income has been, you know, to, 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 to say goodbye to a job that, pay, that, that uh, pays for the food that goes on your family's table and the education that your children get is, is not an easy thing to do. Um, now, there were, there were supposed to be Palestinian elections. They were called off. I can't remember the sequence of events exactly, but um, Hamas, this was supposed to be in April, and Hamas also was supposedly eager to have these elections. Um, but, um, you know, they've been called off. As far as I know, and Rula, you can, I, I don't follow Gaza internal politics too, too closely, but as far as I understand from my friends in Gaza, like Hamas is deeply unpopular. Hamas is, is popularity as 20%. Like worse, worse yeah. than Trump. Trump at least was at thirty-six percent. Hamas is is leveled, uh, but it's the 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 main thing is, uh, and and just to be clear, Palestinians' youth is are craving democracy. They are protesting the authority. They are protesting Hamas. They are protesting Israel. I mean, I honestly I feel for them because they're struggling on th three four fronts. And, and But they are clear about what they want. They want freedom, democracy. I mean, one of the, probably one of the main discourse that we need to address, why the Emiratis and, and the Bahrainis and others, they share actually Israel ethos and, and, and philosophy in crushing dissent, crushing anybody and killing anybody that would demand democracy. I mean, MBZ is philosophically, he's aligned with, with Trump and Netanyahu. He loved that. This is what he did. He bankrolled all these dictators in the Arab world so they can crush their, their you know, peaceful protesters who are demanding democracy, dignity, and human rights, and, and to breathe freely. Do you think then that the arrival of Biden now in the White House will make a difference? No. No. I agree. No. <laughs> that was a short answer on both counts. <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to say why, but I'm going to let Rula take it first and then I'll... No, add. no, I, I will actually let you do it. Uh, I know. I, on this, um, Blinken actually, during his confirmation hearing, said that the best thing that, ever, that Trump ever did is his Israel policy. And that says yeah. a lot about where they stand. Israel, Israel is the third rail of American domestic politics and has been for many years. Um, the rise of the of uh, the Christian evangelical right in in domestic politics, their influence and power is very significant because they are Zionists for eschatological reasons, and they have a very strong alliance um, that's based on pretty nefarious goals um, with uh, the Israeli government, with Netanyahu, with the settlers who are extremely important now in Netanyahu's uh, power base of power. Um, so, uh, and also amongst Israel, amongst, sorry, amongst Jewish Americans, um, you know, it's quite complicated because as Rula said earlier, um, around, uh, around 80% of, um, American Jews are Democrats. They vote democratic, but Palestine is sort of, um, where they're, they're, this is changing very strongly and noticeably with the younger generation, but for um, for American for Jewish Americans um, age say I don't know forty five or fifty and older, um, if identification with Israel is very very important. Criticism of Israel, they often. Um, allied it, or they often confuse it with anti-Semitism. This is a massive conversation within the Jewish community right now. 
you know, how do you define anti-Semitism? Is criticism of Israel government policy actually anti-Semitic? Um, but, you know, I have been called a self-hating Jew. And I should add that I am a citizen of Israel. I speak fluent Hebrew. I was raised in a Jewish home. I went to Jewish schools. And yet I am frequently called a self-hating Jew because I am critical of Israeli policy. And regardless, I mean, when you see Netanyahu embracing these European fascists who really are anti-Semitic, whether Salvini in Italy, Victor Orban, Orban or or Le Pen, and you see he's trying to build an ethno-nationalist bridge uh, to all of these authoritarian, it's for him, it's about power and he can weaponize whatever it takes. And the, the charge of anti-Semitism actually against critics like Lisa and like others and Peter Beinhardt and many others actually undermine the fight against real anti-Semitism in Europe. Those people who march in Poland saying Jews will not replace us or in Charlottesville, these people are defended by Donald Trump, supposedly uh, an ally of, of Bibi Netanyahu. And I, well, it might be um, too much to ask. Yeah, it might be too much to ask in the, the midst of a war, whether you feel optimistic. But uh, perhaps, Lisa, if I can uh, end with you on this and then lastly, a question to Rula. But in all the years that you've been observing and reporting on the conflict, do you think things have have gotten better or do you think that they've, they're sort of moving in the wrong direction? Both. It's really, and I don't mean to be glib. Uh, you know, the violence is increasing, the dehumanization is increasing, the racism is increasing, the the intercommunal violence and and uh, suspicion is 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 rising. But uh, at the same time, you have you know a clear shift in the American Jewish community with the young um, young people speaking out and saying that they are both strongly identified uh, with their Jewish community and very critical of Israel and that they and and very supportive of Palestinian rights. Uh, you have alliances between Palestinians and Jews, um, both abroad and in Israel. Um, and you also have uh, you have the beginning of a sort of a crack uh, in the discourse about Israel in the United States, and you see that with Rashida Tlaib and uh, and, um, and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, um, and you know a few a few years ago, it, it just simply wasn't. It would be suicide for any American politician uh, of any stripe to criticize Israel. Okay, and also in the media, um, even as you see, and and Rula was completely correct that the uh, as the American journalists who are covering Israel from Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Uh, can really be very guilty, especially in wartime, of parroting the government's line. But at the same time, you have journalists like Ayman Mohirdin on MSNBC, which is an important um, mainstream broadcaster, um, being you know overtly critical of Israel uh, in in a live broadcast. Which, when he interviews um, Israeli spokespeople, for example, um, and this is this is new. This wouldn't. I don't think that Ayman Mohildin would have done that. Would have been would have been allowed to to be critical of Israel during a mainstream live broadcast, even as recently as as five years ago. So you you have these things happening in tandem. You know, uh, uh, ascendant far right, ascendant racism, ethno nationalism, violence, internecine conflicts, intercommunal conflicts, and uh, a shift in the discourse on the liberal to far left. And Rula, is there anything that you observe that offers you particularly hope for the future? Hope? <laughs> um, 
again, I think the far right is much more organized than the progressive movement. I think on foreign policy, they're still, you know, trying to figure out how can they carry a progressive foreign policy without, Lisa is spot on when she said, you know, Israel is the third ro- the third rail, I believe you said that, yes. uh, of American domestic politics. She's spot on with evangelical rising. But again, when I see January 6th insurrection, when I see these marches of, of fascists in Israel uh, chanting death to Arabs, fascists in, in America chanting Jews will not replace us, and then attacking Congress, blowing up things, you know, attacking uh, worshippers in Tree, um, Tree of Life synagogue, killing people right and left. I think it's time for the progressive movement to unite and to unite for democracy, for human rights, for for decency, for justice, and not only uh, when it comes to, to the United States. If this is our foreign policy, then it should be not only against Putin or against China, it should be against, not only against, it should be pressuring our ally. We have a responsibility to pressure our allies to abide by the rule of law, to abide by international norms and by human rights standards. Otherwise, we're hypocritical, or let me say something else, we are Yang Yang. And I'm referencing to Andrew Yang from New York City, who's running for Congress as Democrat, but then on this issue, his his obviously pro-ethno-nationalism somewhere else. Andrew Yang made some uh, very strongly uh, pro-Israel statements uh, just a couple of days ago. And, uh, you know, despite, as as Rula said, he's he's running as as a liberal Democrat, um, but you know, this is the sh- he's pandering in in New York, where you just you can't win the the mayoral election without the support of the heavily right wing enclaves in South Brooklyn uh, of uh, modern Orthodox Jews, for example. So there you go. Thank you, Faisal. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, well, Rula Jabril, Lisa Goldman. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thank it was a very much conversation, and uh, and uh, thank you very much for the uh, for the very intelligent moderation of the conversation. And thank you, Lisa, because honestly, if Palestinians have any chance to survive and their nation continue to exist, it's because of amazing Jews like yourself who are humanists. So thank you for that. Oh, I don't know if I deserve it, but it's very kind of you to say it. Thank you both. You'll find Rula's essay on our website, newlinesmag.com. It's called Israel's Right-Wing Rhetoric Offers a Glimpse of the GOP Future. And we'll be publishing more on the conflict in the coming days in the magazine. I hope we can continue this conversation on Twitter. You'll find us there at newlinesmag. You'll also find Rula at Rula Jibril and Lisa at Lisa NG and me at Faisal Yafai. Thank you all for joining us.